forever because we are dying for God's law. So here all of a sudden, the sense of we're going to die, but God will bring us back to life again. Um, it's interesting. Some translations will say, will raise us up to life everlastingly made new, which almost sounds like it could live in both, in both Testaments, Hebrew Bible as well as Christian Bible. In the book of Daniel, it says, uh, in terms of the envisioning of the future world, what will come to be, at that time shall arise Michael, Michael, hi Michael, uh, the great prince uh, who has charge of your people. Um, Michael, the archangel Michael, was considered to be the uh, angel of the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found uh, in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, that sounds almost like the book of Revelations, don't it? We'll talk about that, I'm sure. So what do we know about this uh, Hellenistic edition, this sort of Greekish philosophy that was embraced by many uh, of, the, of the Jewish people uh, back at that time? We know that all of a sudden there was the feeling that the dead could be brought back to life again if they happened to be on the right team. If you're on God's team, you could come back to life. There is a, uh, a judgment when that happens. Those who merit return from death uh, will experience blessing, and those who don't merit uh, will come back from uh, death to eternal contempt, everlasting contempt. And then as we move towards that first century of the Common Era, especially uh, the last part of the first century before the Common Era, we see this idea of apotheosis. This was uh, especially uh, true in, in uh, Rome, for example, when Caesar uh, uh, was murdered, the idea was that he came back and was transformed uh, into a god. Uh, so this concept that some people will come back and will be uh, transformed into deities. So with the Greeks, the world to come, life after death, is tied to this whole concept of resurrection. We're going to spend some time taking a look at resurrection bodily resurrection and alternatives to that uh, in terms of how did it work out in, in Jewish life. We know, uh, especially from Josephus and from looking back at our own histories, that there were two basic religio-philosophical groups or philosophical religio groups. Uh, one was called the Sadducees, which come from the Tzadokim, uh, the uh, group that considered its uh, progenitor, Tzadok, who was a Kohen, a priest in Jerusalem. And their particular kinds of writings uh, did not include a belief in life after death. They believed that once you were dead, you were dead. And then we have the Perushim, the Pharisees, and we see from their writings that they did believe in life after death. Now, if you had these two competing ideologies, when the temple is ultimately destroyed in the year 70, and the 
Sadducees, which was really sort of headed up by the upper class of the people and by the priests, had no place to practice their sacrificial cult. The last ideology standing was uh, the ideology of the Pharisees. So we're going to see various kinds of uh, permutations of this idea of life after death. We now move forward after the year 70 of the Common Era into what we'll call the early Mishnaic period. The Mishnah was that first body of rabbinic literature. Um, it was codified around the beginning of the third century, right around uh, the year 200. Uh, and in that literature, there is some discussion about uh, prayers that we will today call the Amidah, the standing prayer. I have to understand that during this early period, the uh, first temple period and the early Mishnaic period, my cat walks by and, of course, changes <laughs> the text. There you go. Um, Jewish worship was sort of like jazz. Um, it was a, a kind of worship in which there were some basic themes that appeared over and over again, but the leader of the service at that time uh, would improvise uh, jazz-like on those themes. And we find in the Babylonian Talmud in Brachot that the authorities begin to try to codify the words and the order of these prayers, to sort of standardize them. Uh, that begins until we get to uh, around the ninth century, uh, a person called Amram Gaon, uh, Rav Amram. Uh, Gaon was the head of the uh, Talmudic Academy in Sura in Babylonia. Um, and he uh, was, uh, uh, as a Gaon, as a really uh, best way to translate Gaon, I guess, is a wise guy. As the real wise guy, he authored many responses. He answered many questions from Jews all over uh, uh, the world at that time, the known world at that time. But his chief work was liturgical. And the most important work of, of Rav Amram was the making of what we will call the first prayer book called the Sidur Rav Amram. Remember, Sidur means Seder, the order of uh, Rav Amram. He would get questions about what's the proper order of prayers, what's the proper uh, laws that have to do with the way we worship um, and in the synagogue and at home. And Rav Amram uh, put together this order of prayers, which became kind of standardized. It is within this order of prayers that we begin to see a formalized idea called Techiyat Hametim, the uh, revivification, the raising of the dead. Techiyat comes, has the, the root of chai, meaning life, and Hameti means the dead. So when we look at these, uh, we find that uh, uh, this idea moves its way into our, our liturgy and is found especially in the second benediction of the Amidah, of that standing prayer, that central core of Jewish worship. Uh, the first one is about a historical God. It's called Avot, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and the second prayer is called Gevurot, God's power. And if you want to know how powerful God is, God is powerful enough to bring the dead back to life. Here is one translation of that prayer. You are forever mighty God, rev uh, reviving the dead, 
great is your salvation. You sustain uh, the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead with great compassion. It goes on and on and on until finally at the end, you are trustworthy to revive the dead. Blessed are you, Adonai, who revives the dead. Now we come to the 11th century, uh, the time of uh, the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Uh, and Rambam is famous for a lot of things. First of all, he's a, he's a real Jewish uh, rationalist. He's one of the first ones who uh, really demands a less uh, uh, supernatural faith uh, and, and more rational approaches. But he has one, um, not one, there is a, a bit of his literature, which we call today Anima Amin, I believe, with perfect faith. It has to do with faith, and it's often called the 13 Articles of Faith. And number 13 here is, I believe with complete faith that there will be resurrection of the dead at the time when it will be the will of the Creator. Blessed be God's name and exalted be God's remembrance forever and ever. Uh, while Jews didn't have a pope, we didn't have some kind of a central synod that made declarations for Jews around the world, uh, Maimonides' authority was very, very great. So this idea uh, that what came through the Amidah in terms of Tichiyat HaBetim was now sort of codified as a central article of Jewish faith. It is a question of faith. Uh, what I've got here is a quotation from Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, uh, a contemporary uh, uh, Jewish teacher of liturgy from the Hebrew Union College from his book called My People's Prayer Book. Here's what, uh, what um, Hoffman says about this second benediction, about this whole concept of giving life to the dead. When we say that we take something on faith, we mean that we believe in something we have not seen. There are degrees of faith, therefore. When someone I trust reports something outlandish, I may still believe it on faith, but only the lowest level of faith, since I do have something to go on, my prior experience with the person doing the reporting. So, for example, if you respect a, a, a teacher or a clergy person or a parent, and they tell you something that sounds crazy, you'll say, you know, because I respect you as a teacher, as a clergy person, or as a parent, I will believe that, even though I haven't seen it. Uh, we move on. <laughs> Lost my place, I'll find it. Has something to go on. Um, why did I just lose my place? Uh, my prior experience with uh, reporting. The highest level of faith is belief in something that no one has ever seen, like a God who provides eternal life, especially uh, where the eternal life uh, that is pictured is patently, and his quote, unbelievable. Uh, and that, what is that? That's resurrection of the dead. Resurrection became a central doctrine among the rabbis and was carried over into Christianity 
when the resurrection of Jesus represents, represented the core uh, around which everything else revolved. Church Father uh, Augustine uh, knew how outlandish the idea of resurrection was and affirmed, I believe because it is absurd. Now that doesn't mean that he believed things that were irrational. It means because it was so difficult to believe, he believed it on faith. He took it on faith. Echoing a similar point of view among Jews, the medieval halachist called the Rokeach says that it is a special merit that we continue to believe in resurrection, the one point of faith to which, by definition, uh, no one uh, uh, can uh, attest. Boy, that's a bad mistake. No one can attest. I have to change that in the PowerPoint. Now we're going to move forward again from the 11th century into the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was that sort of uh, uh, philosophy that came to being in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, which demystified uh, uh, knowledge, suggested that things needed to be rational and logical. It emphasized uh, the uh, use of human intellect uh, as opposed to relying on tradition. Uh, the French Revolution was really a product of this. If you uh, just finished a book on uh, the French Revolution, in which there was a tremendous amount of impulse to try to de-Christianize, de-Catholicize uh, the French culture and to get things to move based on, on philosophy and based on rationality. Uh, so Jews could become emancipated during this particular period of time. Up until this time, Jews were generally not citizens of states. But when the French Revolution came about in 1789, and it was stated that uh, we believed or they believed in liberty, fraternity, equality for all people, even Jews, Jews had an opportunity to become full participants uh, in society. And it enabled Jews to begin to reform uh, their, uh, their faith. So in Germany, we began to see a group of uh, people who uh, were the beginning of the reform movement today, who began to put greater emphasis on universal rational ideas rather than on particular cultural uh, phenomena or traditions. Some of the things that they did, for example, is they emphasized the equality of women. Uh, they uh, saw uh, worship in the vernacular. They uh, believed in the communal aesthetic, meaning they wanted Jewish worship to look like the worship of, of uh, uh, the Christians roundabout to be able to say, you know, we're a religion too. Uh, they dispensed with many traditional ways, such as things like kashrut or many of the Sabbath restrictions and so on. Uh, but one of the great things that the early German reform movement did was to reform our liturgy. They wanted services to become shorter. They wanted instrumental music. Uh, they wanted communal worship to include men and women together, sitting together. And they wanted to pray. Well, I have to change that one too pray in the vernacular so people would understand uh, and therefore, the, and they also purged uh, or modified certain ideas uh, which were seen as uh, anachronistic. And resurrection was one of those ideas. Uh, they looked at what happened when people died. They saw that the bodies uh, that went into the 
ground would rot uh, and disaggregate, as we'll see later. Uh, and so they began to modify these ideas of bodily resurrection uh, into things like immortality of the soul. The physical um, goes back to the earth, but the spiritual is what is eternal about us. And sometimes they would even say, actually, nothing lives on after us except the impact of our good deeds and our memories. Marty Jacobson, who's having his birthday today, happy birthday again, Marty, uh, sent me uh, uh, an email when I announced this particular thing, and he asked about this particular doctrine from the early reform movement. Now, we're not talking just about German reformers here. We're talking about trying to begin a movement. And this is a statement from 1885, which happened to be the year the Temple Israel was founded here in Canton, Ohio. And that statement said, we reject as ideas not rooted in Judaism the beliefs both in bodily resurrection and in Gehenna and Eden, heaven and hell, or hell and heaven, uh, as abodes for everlasting punishment and reward, or believing uh, that there is any, and this I see here has been emboldened. Uh, I don't know whether Marty made it bold or whether it actually was that way, anything after death. I mean, so this is extreme rationality, very heady kind of approach to Jewish life, uh, suggested that um, if you look back at this whole concept of, of bodily resurrection and so on, it has its roots back in Hellenistic uh, philosophy, yada, 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 and it's not Jewish. So what about the Olam Abba? I've been talking all of this time about, about resurrection, and one of the reasons that I've been doing that is because if you look at Jewish texts, you don't find very much about the world to come. That's because while Jews believed in it, the reality was that we focus our light on this world and what we do here. The Talmud tells us that this world is like the anti-chamber anti to the world to come. And if we do our job here, as you'll see, what happens uh, to us in the world to come, God will take care of. Christianity also believes that what we do in this world is important but so often it shines its light on what happens after we die. So what we have here uh, is a, a selection from the Babylonian Talmud from Tractate Brachot, uh, page 17a, if you want to look it up. Uh, and this is one of the few understandings about what the world to come is about. Rav was wont to say, Rav is a rabbinic authority, the world to come is not like this world. In the world to come, there is no eating, no drinking, no procreation, no business negotiations, no jealousy, no hatred, and no competition. Rather, the righteous sit with their crowns upon their heads, uh, enjoying the splendor of uh, the divine presence, as it is stated, uh, and they beheld God, and they ate and they drank from Exodus, meaning that beholding God's countenance is tantamount to eating and drinking. So what are they saying? It is not this concept that life after death is like life in this world, where we have taste and smell and touch and all this sensual uh, kind of experience, but it is rather uh, something that is far more spiritual. Rabbi? Yes? Hi. Excuse me, I just wanted to let you know it's 425, so 
I've got five minutes. I can yes. do this, I think. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Uh, some other worldly facts. It also says in Pir Kavot rabbinic literature that all Israel have a portion in the Olam Abba. So all of us, all Jews, get into the world to come. But it also says that righteous non-Jews who follow the seven Noahite laws, not tearing animal, limbs off of animals and eating them, not committing sexual impropriety, idolatry, and so on, also have a portion in the Olam Abba. One's portion may be greater or smaller depending on the nourishing of the soul in this world. For Jews, if we do the mitzvot, if we follow a righteous lifestyle, if we study Torah and try to build character, our chelik ba'olam haba, our portion in the world to come, is greater. Gentiles need to follow only the seven laws. Jews, having taken on the covenant uh, and its uh, additional obligations, have a, a little further way to go. Uh, it says here that uh, the Jewish point of view says, suggests that we, meaning all human beings, are created by God with the destination of the, of the world to come. It is anticipated that we're all going to go there. Righteousness, the mitzvot for Jews, prepares us for our portion. Uh, the olam haba then is ours to lose, not ours to gain. Uh, and Gehenna, uh, Gehenna, Gehinom, uh, Gehenna is the place of purification. Christians will understand that as well. So here's God's power. Um, we have this blessing that says, we're going to review it, You are mighty, O God, uh, to revivify the dead. And that blessing ends with, You are faithful to give life to those uh, who are dead. Here is our prayer book today that we use today at Temple. It's a picture of the book. And you'll notice an interesting thing. You'll notice that in the uh, line that starts fully giving life to all, there is a parenthesis, reviving that which is dead, close parenthesis. And in the Hebrew down there, it says, Baruch atah Adonai mechayeh hakol, parenthesis hametim. This book suggests that there are people today who do not believe in resurrection of the dead, but there are also, also people who do. So our prayer book gives us an opportunity to choose what our belief is to accommodate both. So what does that mean? This is my last part. Don't cut me off yet, Julie. Uh, I read a book that was recommended by Rabbi Adlin uh, by Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. It's called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Um, and in that book, uh, Tyson talks about this idea that we are all made of stardust. He starts with the Big Bang Theory and says that there's only so much matter in the world, and it explodes and goes out in, into the universe and coalesces and creates world. And in essence, what he says is that uh, when we look at the world today that we live in, uh, we look like disparate items. There are men and women, there are tall people and short people, there are people and there are animals, and so on and so forth. But each of uh, these people, uh, or these things, are made up of molecules. And all the molecules are made up of atoms, and the atoms are made up of particles, and the particles are made up of charges, and it goes on and on and on. So down the rabbit hole to smaller and smaller things until we finally get to 
uh, the fact that all the things that really make the universe, they're all the same. It's what I call the Lego analogy. Uh, our grandchildren get Lego pieces to make a spaceship, to make a car, to, to make a building. And when they're finished with it, they disaggregate those Lego pieces and throw them all into a big, big bin. And all the Lego pieces are there and they can take them out and use them again. So that when we die, these elements that make us us disaggregate. And with time, they disperse throughout the entire universe to aggregate again as something new. So what is us dies, but is resurrected again as something new. It just takes an incredible amount of time, which God surely has. And that's my piece, and I've done it in 30 minutes. <laughs> I gotta get out of this thing. How do I stop this so that you can see stop sharing? I wanna stop sharing. Well, I could just top. do this. At the top. At the top. The little red box at the top. It's done. It's done. Screen sharing has stopped. Okay. There we go. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi. Can everyone hear me and see the screen that I'm sharing right now? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Johns. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you, Rabbi, for providing a great uh, foundation and background uh, for the Christian beliefs on, on resurrection. And I, I, I loved all the, you, you went, so many different places through history and chronologically the progression of time. I thought that was, that was really fascinating. So thank you so much. I wasn't going to go there, but uh, I, I so, I so uh, enjoy Neil deGrasse Tyson and his comments there. Uh, I, I think even the early church fathers talked about this concept of what does it mean if we believe in resurrection? Uh, and I'm not going to quite go there in the presentation, but I'll go there now to say that the early uh, church fathers debated this point and wondered what does it mean to be resurrected into new life um, when indeed we will disintegrate. And, our, and they, of course, they didn't have ideas of atoms and molecules and all those things like Neil deGrasse Tyson does, but uh, that was a discussion point. And in some way, uh, they ultimately said we would be restored and brought back together, even if we have been um, you know, uh, disintegrated and made, made part of the cosmos in some way, God would restore us to a conscious state. So that's what the early church fathers would say. So um, I'm here to talk about the world to come, resurrection, the afterlife uh, from a Christian perspective. And uh, here we go. General outline. I'll start with a general concept of resurrection, move on to Jesus's resurrection, because that helps Christians understand their resurrection. Uh, also talk about uh, what I'm calling today post-mortem destinations, as well as post-mortem activities. Uh, first, a general concept of resurrection. Uh, Rabbi mentioned the Sadducees, which the Sadducees and the Pharisees figure a lot into the Gospels. Uh, of the New Testament, particularly uh, in Luke, the Sadducees are talking with Jesus, 
and uh, they're, they see Jesus as a, a rival rabbi and teacher, and so they're trying to um, perhaps uh, catch him in, in some logical uh, conundrum. So they bring up the point, this comes from Luke chapter 20, uh, remembering that the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, they come to Jesus asking him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow, raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, the second, the third married her, and all seven died uh, in the same way, childless. And finally, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, which the Sadducees don't believe in, uh, in the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had all married her. And Jesus, trying to get out of this sticky situation, says to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Uh, and this is what we really should take from this line. It's hard to say. Um, because on the surface level, it sounds like there is no marriage uh, in the afterlife uh, and the resurrection from the dead. Um, is something more going on? I have to imagine that there's, we could probably study this as a PhD dissertation and find all sorts of uh, connections here. I don't quite know exactly uh, what, uh, all that Jesus is getting after here. But he continues by saying, indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the, the burning bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. So here in this, uh, in continuing his response to the Sadducees, Jesus says, uh, even in the Torah, Moses is saying, uh, talking about the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, talking about them as living, not just of those who have died and those who are past. So Jesus is uh, um, painting a picture here of the patriarchs being, being alive and, um, and well still in some form or fashion. Uh, generally, I uh, want to talk about the concept of resurrection. Here at the right, we had to go, we had to have uh, Caravaggio again this week. So Caravaggio here has raising of Lazarus. Um, and throughout both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, there are several miracle stories where people are brought back to life. Uh, you've got the whole list there. I won't go through them all. Um, but what what's key to note here is that their lives are restored for a time, but these people ultimately died again, right? So um, in the, the New Testament, the most famous and the lengthiest story is Lazarus, uh, who comes back to life, which we'll look at in just a moment. And the idea is that he's brought back to life and he doesn't still live, you know, he's not hiding out somewhere still alive. He, he died at some later point. So these miracle stories of people being raised back to life are different from the resurrection of Jesus and the final resurrection of the last day. Zeroing in on that uh, passage and from John 11 of the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus, um, Jesus comes to this town of Bethany, 
finding Lazarus had already been dead for four days. He has this conversation with uh, the sister Martha and says, uh, your brother will rise again, to which Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So from this, we're supposed to understand and we can tease out that the uh, resurrection at the last day is something that Martha believed and she probably wasn't alone. It was probably the community to which she belonged. And Jesus' response to her uh, is to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who believe, lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she responded to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Uh, so that is really uh, outlines for us that the Christian faith stands and or falls with the truth of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Um, that if the resurrection didn't happen for Christians, if we could jump in a time machine and uh, stand there on that Easter Sunday morning and, and say, oh, it didn't really happen, uh, Christianity uh, would would fail to be. It doesn't make sense without the core of the faith, which is the resurrection. And this material comes from Daniel Migliori, a professor from uh, Princeton, in his book, Faith Seeking Understanding. And he writes, and this, this echoes a lot of what Rabbi Spitzer had said moments ago, that resurrection in the biblical sense of the word belongs to the late Jewish, early apocalypse, Christian apocalyptic hope. It points to the event in which, despite the suffering and persecution of God's people, the final fulfillment of God's covenant promises has begun. God's raising of the crucified Jesus to new life is God's concrete confirmation of the promise that evil will be defeated and justice will reign throughout God's creation. Um, so within this framework of apocalyptic eschatology, which those are big words, essentially meaning apocalyptic, something is being revealed and eschatology is end time. So the idea is that something is being revealed and made known to us in the end. Um, and this understanding and this message that Jesus is risen requires a multi-dimensional interpretation. There's a lot going on. Um, because it is the core of our faith, there's multiple, under, there's, uh, there, it, it holds a lot of weight and uh, can be understood and interpreted through a lot of dimensions here. I'm going to focus in on just a few Again, I, my PowerPoint slides are available. If you shoot me an email, I'm glad to send them to you. Um, the, the one uh, dimension here for the resurrection is a theological um, interpretation, which says that the resurrection implies in, um, that God is faithful. The God of Israel, who alone can open graves and bring the dead back to life, as we see in Ezekiel 37, God, that God is the God who raised the crucified Jesus. And what we have to understand is Jesus did not raise himself from the dead, but that uh, God the Father uh, did. Um, we could talk about a Christological and a pneumatological uh, dimension of this as well, but something I want to go to is actually the cosmic dimension. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, a um, German theologian and scholar um, states that the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of God's new world, and it is the first preliminary radiance of the imminent dawn of God's new creation. 
So the idea is, is that in the last days, uh, in the resurrection of the dead, will coincide with God's new creation, but that G the resurrection of Jesus uh, precedes all that, but is a foreshadowing of that which will come at the end. Uh, I, um, I'm going to skip this for sake of time. But there are cosmic dimensions to this. Uh, zero, uh, going to a, an important passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writes, uh, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day and appeared to uh, a bunch of people, including Paul himself, later on the road to Damascus. And then Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who also have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. And N.T. Wright, uh, uh, English theologian, writes in one of his books, The Challenge of Jesus, reflects on the experience and the faith of the early church by writing, the reason the early Christians were joyful, so joyful, was because they knew themselves uh, to be living not so much in the last days, though that was true in a particular way too, as in the first days, the opening days of God's new creation, because what Jesus did means that everything is different. The whole point of the New, of new Testament Christianity is that the end came forward into the present in Jesus the Messiah. Um, so, as I said a moment ago, Jesus' resurrection is a foreshadowing, a glimpse into the future of the ultimate resurrection of the faithful. So now we're going to turn to looking at Jesus' resurrection, as that helps us to understand our own. Here's another painting from Caravaggio. This is the Supper at Emmaus, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew... Uh, you have this some stories in all the Gospels, uh, some post-resurrection um, appearances. In Matthew, Jesus uh, meets the disciples suddenly. Uh, not quite sure if that's supposed to indicate that he just pops on the scene or if he walks up surprising people. Not quite sure. But he meets the disciples and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus meets with and talks to two disciples as they walk to Emmaus. So that's the uh, painting here at the left. Uh, and for some reason at first, they don't recognize him, even though they had met him and had heard him, um, but they don't recognize him. And he opens, in this story, he opens the scriptures to them. And of course, the scriptures at this point, uh, no, not one word of the New Testament had been penned. Uh, this is all Hebrew Bible. So Jesus uh, uh, essentially preaches to them and, and uses the scriptures to talk about himself and uh, his death and resurrection. Jesus reluctantly agrees to eat with them, and only when he breaks the bread, just like he did a few days prior uh, with the apostles at the Last Supper, 
when he breaks the bread and pours the cup. Only in that moment do they actually recognize him, but then mysteriously Jesus disappears. Um, in the next section of Luke, Jesus appears to his disciples. Some people are afraid, thinking he's a ghost, but Jesus invites everyone to touch him and to see his hands and his feet where he was, uh, the, the nails went through his hands and feet. And an interesting thing here, post-resurrection, Jesus is hungry and they give him uh, some fish to eat. Moving over to Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 20, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Uh, but she doesn't recognize him. Again, just like in Luke 24, um, Mary Magdalene absolutely saw Jesus pre, uh, pre-crucifixion. She knew him well. Uh, and even though she saw him now post-resurrection, she doesn't recognize him until he says her name. Uh, also, he says, don't hang on to me or don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended, which uh, has kind of... Um, confused and made people wonder exactly what Jesus meant there, um, because then Jesus, and a few verses later, Jesus invites Thomas to touch, touch him and touch his nails and uh, the, uh, touch the, the holes from the nails. Um, in the next section in John, Jesus appears to the disciples, even though it says they're in a locked room. So we're not quite sure how he gets there. The question is, did he teleport? Did he walk through the wall? Uh, we just have no idea um, what's exactly going on there. Then in the next chapter, Jesus helps. This is, again, post-resurrection. Jesus helps the disciples to catch lots of fish, 153 to be exact. And there's some theories about what that exactly means. Um, and again, Jesus eats breakfast with them. So, um, I said a, a little while ago at the start is that Christian, the concept of Christian resurrection is really predicated and understood most through Jesus's own resurrection. And it, it's, um, yeah, so it outlines the future death and resurrection of Christian. And uh, in Hebrews, another book of the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the pioneer. Some translations say the trailblazer of the faith. He is the one who goes before everyone else. So if his death is an anticipation of the final resurrection of the dead, we are supposed to understand a few things from the post-Easter appearances. In the resurrection, we, the faithful, will have bodies. Um, so the Scots Confession, Presbyterians um, having a tr- uh, historical connection to Scotland. Uh, we had an early confession of the church uh, from the Reformation era uh, thereafter that says an interesting phrase, which I've always found uh, fascinating, that says, uh, we will have the self-same body, the very same body, because Jesus died, went in, his body went into the tomb, and then three days later, the empty tomb was there. Um, and so if Jesus is the trailblazer, the one who goes before us, as whatever happened to Jesus will happen to, to Christians, uh, it's the self-same body. Now, what does that, how does that intersect with Neil deGrasse Tyson and the concept of uh, resurrection centuries or millennia well after uh, one has died? I don't know how that squares. But the idea is we will have bodies of some sort, but they are different they're somehow different in a mysterious, really unknown way. Um, but Jesus is appearing places. He, you know, popping into rooms, um, perhaps walking through doors, but also not recognized by people who knew him and knew him well. 
um, just a few days before uh, his crucifixion. Uh, if in the resurrection we will still eat, Jesus still eats. Uh, there's three stories of that. Um, and also he's in relationship with those who are important to him. And so I think that also means that we'll be, still be in relationship with those who are important to us. And life continues in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I want to move on to discussing post-mortem destinations. So uh, where do we go after death in the Christian model? Uh, one Christian belief is that after a believer dies, they go straight to heaven to enjoy their eternal rewards right there and right then, period. That's the end of the story. Uh, and in this model of belief, there's very little sense of waiting for something else to occur. And this is, that is one's eternal state and destination, heaven, period, end of story. An alternate but overlapping model, which we won't talk about too much because we just don't have the time, uh, suggests that Jesus will return, that's known as the second coming, and he will take believers to heaven in the last days. Another Christian view is uh, something called soul sleep, that after death, the soul sleeps and awaits the second coming of Christ or the final resurrection of the dead. Uh, and uh, yeah. A predominant belief today, however, is that um, when one dies, their spirit or soul, some conscious part of them goes to heaven for a uh, conscious existence, and that person awaits the, the end of days or the ultimate resurrection of the dead. Uh, N.T. Wright, again, this English theologian who's, who's a, uh, quite prolific and still writing in these days, he would say that those who die have a heavenly life, but that there is not just life after death, but he would actually say there's life after life after death, meaning that after we die and have that period of conscious existence in heaven, there is yet another stage after that, uh, which is the, resur uh, the resurrection. Uh, and he would also say that at the end of days, we won't all just end up in heaven while the earth is discarded and that's the end of the story. But instead, new heaven, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and they will be mystically united uh, forever. Uh, what John says in Revelation, here we go, Rabbi, first mentioned of Revelation, uh, uh, the Apostle John says, the home of God is among mortals. The new earth will be our ultimate home, and God will dwell with us. So there's this uniting of heaven and earth. It's not just we go to heaven and the earth is forgotten about, but there is in Revelation this, this mystical unity between heaven and earth. Uh, and the biblical witness really suggests heaven is a pit stop. And that the, ultim, uh, that the new heaven and the new earth being fully united will be our forever home. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22, we see this picture of the new heaven and the new earth. Um, and as John uh, looks into this, the holy city of the new Jerusalem, he's surprised by what he sees, or rather what he doesn't see. Because he doesn't see a temple in this new Jerusalem. Of course, the former Jerusalem, the temple was the center of the city and the center of worship. But now God and the Lamb are the temple, and God's glory is the lamp that lights up the whole city. Uh, so John is pretty surprised by this. 
uh, this vision that he has in the book of Revelation. Um, uh, but because, and, and particularly because he expects the temple to be there. That's kind of the central uh, feature for Jerusalem. Cent the temple's there, the center of the city, the center of worship. But the temple also serves to separate God from the sins of the people. So John's description of the new heaven and the new earth emphasized there's no longer that separation. Uh, and scholar Gregory Beale writes uh, that the divine presence is not limited by these physical boundaries of an Israelite temple, since not only all believing Israelites, but even all peoples experience God's intimate tabernacling presence. Since a physical temple was a particularistic nationalistic institution, a sign of God's and Israel's separation from the unclean nations, it had no room in John's New Jerusalem not only because believing Jew and Gentile are united in Christ in the New Jerusalem, but also because they have all gained the status of priests serving before God's presence. Ooh, that's a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, I have stuff here also about hell. Um, it's a very variety of views. I'll, in, in 15 seconds, I'll very quickly say that um, not all, all those who call themselves Christians do not necessarily believe the same exact thing about hell. There are multiple, there are a variety of views. Um, some would say that hell isn't real. Hell doesn't exist at all. Some would say that hell is real. What exactly does that mean? Um, is that the, the traditional view is eternal conscious punishment. Those who do not believe uh, go to hell forever and are eternally aware of their, uh, their torment. Some say that there is an end to that punishment. Some say there may be no punishment at all. Uh, there's a sense of perhaps universalism uh, in that as well. Uh, the, the final thing I want to talk about uh, before, I, um, uh, before I stop screen sharing here and, and we, we go to some questions are post-mortem activities. I'm always surprised uh, by how many Christians um, don't actually look forward to eternity sometimes because they have... Uh, a malformed or a um, lack of understanding about what heaven and afterlife, heaven in quotation marks, I should say, um, what exactly that looks like. Uh, and some folks believe that it, it's going to be a one long church service filled only with singing, praying, and probably some long, boring sermons. Um, but that's not quite at all what we see in scripture. Uh, instead, the portrait of eternal bliss in the New Testament, like in Revelation 19, uh, shows a party, a celebration at what is called the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we eat and where we drink. Uh, at one point, uh, Jesus says, I will not drink of this, this cup again until we are reunited in the new life. Um, and so there's a sense that Yes, we will be, there will be partying, uh, reveling, celebrating. And then uh, N.T. Wright also suggests, and I think this is, uh, I, I'm very convinced by this, uh, that, that our active vocations continue in the afterlife. And this doesn't mean our career or our job. I'm not going to be uh, necessarily a pastor in the afterlife. Uh, but instead, uh, the gifts that God has given us and th those will be used in service of God's kingdom. We will continue to flourish and through eternity and our conscious uh, resurrection in our bodies, these very bodies being resurrected to new life, we will continue to flourish using our gifts to give God greater glory for all time.
So, whoo, that is, that's everything. There you are. Hey. Um, so, of course, first of all, thank you very, very much, Michael, uh, for all that Caravaggio. It just does like, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Uh, um, what we're going to do, as I mentioned at the very beginning, is that uh, for those of you who have been with us and have listened to these presentations, if you want to go make dinner or go out and pursue your vocations, whatever it might be, uh, you can leave with impunity. But before you do, I'd like to mention to you that we have two more sessions planned, one for next Monday and then one for uh, June 1st. Uh, these two sessions are going to be on incarceration, the transformative power of incarceration. Uh, next uh, next Monday, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, my chaplaincy at Mansfield Correctional Institution, um, sharing with you some of the writings of the inmates, and also talking about uh, some Hebrew Bible stories of incarceration, like Jonah in the belly of the of the whale or the fish, um, and uh, Elijah in the cave, and so on and so forth. And then two weeks after that, on June 1st, uh, Father Eric Harmon, who is an Anglican priest and the, the uh, chaplain, one of the two chaplains at Mansfield, will talk about the theology of incarceration. He uses the Exodus story as a way of explaining what it means to be imprisoned and then liberated uh, and so on. So you're certainly invited to be a part of that. Um, thank you, Julie, for uh, hosting this part of our session. Thank you very much, Michael, for your thoughtful and beautiful presentation. I need to learn to make PowerPoints as well as you do. Um, and now those who wish to leave may leave, and those who wish to stay to ask questions, um, please feel free to do so. Is that a hand that's going? Nope, that's somebody going goodbye. Rabbi, this is Rita. Um, could you, I, I messed up the things. It looks like Spitzer 18. But um, <laughs> um, could you go back, uh, um, please, to this uh, slide that you used, um, Reverend Wallace, that talked about, um, I think it was just before your last category. So it would be about Jews and Christians embracing it looked like the um admonition to embrace christianity that was the and i want to make sure that i read that properly i think it would be behind that one go up a little is it this one here at the very bottom it's talking about believing jew and gentile united in christ yes yes yeah. so that yeah Go ahead with your question. I'm sorry. Oh, you go right ahead. I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah. So Gregory Beale here, writing firmly within a Christian um, uh, Christian worldview and writing on the Book of Revelation in particular, um, also drawing from other uh, images from the from New Testament. Uh, I think there is some references here and some um, allusions also to a passage in Galatians, which said that uh, we are all one. In Christ, there is no longer male or female, uh, Jew or Gentile, um, and, and that at this time, that Jew-Gentile distinction, particularly within Christianity, 
uh, was being broken down. Uh, and so I don't quite, I don't think that he is uh, necessarily saying uh, Jews are converting or anything like that in this, in this quotation. I think he's really trying to say that uh, those, this early time when John was writing Revelation, that those who, uh, those who still were Jewish, but believed in Jesus as Messiah, and those who were Gentiles and believed in Jesus as Messiah are united in the New Jerusalem. I think that's kind of what he's trying to lay out here. I think, uh, if I might add, the, the uh, Galatians passage that you, you speak of uh, is a question as to if God makes a promise to Abraham, how do Gentiles get that? All right, yeah. And therefore, I think what Galatians is saying is that, you know, in the person of Jesus and the phenomena of Jesus, if you believe in that, then you Gentiles are heirs of the promise of Abraham. So it's not like there's a new promise here. That I think that that's really something that I've been been trying to suggest in the years that I taught at Walsh and, and so on. It's not like Christianity invented something new. Right. It's that God makes a promise to people, and Jews have it one way. And if you're not Jewish and want to be an heir of that, have have the the blessings of that promise and be part of the covenant. Uh, this is what you have to do. It's the same promise for all of us. Well, it's interesting because um, in a way that excludes all the cultural groups that were surrounding Israel and, and that part of the world at that particular time. And there were some very uh, powerful and prescient um, religions in that area. So, I mean, this is a, to me, this sounds like a rather narrow perspective that's saying the group as I define it, but not talking about the larger group. Rabbi and, and uh, Reverend, what do you say? Uh, I would say that I think uh, within, I don't think that the, the, the writer of Revelation or uh, Paul and write, writing uh, Galatians or Gregory Beale here are trying to be exclusionary uh, with mentioning Jew and Gentile, I think instead they're trying to see they're embodying an understand embodying an understanding that if you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. Everyone else who is I, I know that there's a particular understanding of Gentile, but the broader understanding of not Jewish, I think is that uh, is how I would interpret and read this as well as the other passages I referenced. And 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 I would suggest to you that. <clears throat> when we talk about that idea about uh, those people who follow the Noahite laws, um, that we had during that period of time, Josephus talks about them, uh, a group of people called God-fearers. They might be Roman pagans, but they uh, had this sense of awe, of respect, of relationship to, a, uh, a, I'll say, a Jewish God, to a monotheistic God at that time. Um, and, and the reason that that's valuable is because it wasn't exclusionary. Um, it, uh, someone who, who uh, followed those laws um, also was an heir of the promise, if you will. Uh, that came, comes through uh, uh, early rabbinic literature. Um, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question or addresses your question, Rita. 
I think she's back on mute. I'm not sure if that was intentional or. No, it, it, I understand where you're going. And, I, and we just don't need to go beyond that. I'll let other people talk. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you both. Other questions or comments? Not hearing any. Going once. <laughs> Going twice. We're making Dan laugh, so we're at, at least we succeeded, right? There we go. So is is Ed on? Is uh, is uh, Ed Irving on the call? I think they are on the call, but I don't see the video. There they are. Yeah, I'm, I'm on here. I'm waiting for your question, Ed. <laughs> well, I guess if I had just one, I have a lot, but. If it, if I had to ask one, uh, it's the Pastor Michael. Uh, Mike, you said that here and after we're to continue using our gifts or, or our skills to provide gifts. Who, who's going to benefit from that? So, um the idea is, yeah, it's it's hard to really define. So I think in in what N.T. Wright was was writing, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And but it's hard because Scripture doesn't completely say this is you know this is what a day by day will look like in the afterlife. If only it were that easy and that uh, clear. Um, but I but his point I think is that however God has created us. Uh, with our our gifts and our vocation, meaning our calling, um, and however those uh, come together and how we were created in the image of God, um, that we will still have those same passions and vocations and giftings in the afterlife, and we will use those for the benefit of everyone. So if you have a, a beautiful singing voice, uh, you will probably still be making music if God gifted you with that. If you have a passion for building community in some way, you will still be building community. The idea is that there is a life beyond uh, a life and an eternal conscious existence um, in the afterlife. And we are in this eternal community still living into the gifts that God has given us. So I just, it's an interesting concept, and, and um, when maybe Rabbi Adlin's on the line, and he, he might want to comment on this too. Uh, it seems to me, from that passage from Brachot that we read that said, there are not these physical things in the world to come. By the way, that's not uh, dogmatic, because there are those who say that everything in the world to come will be better than things in this world, except for, for food, food will is really much better here than it will be there. Um, That's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but but I, I think what it's suggesting that people for all eternity will be sitting there contemplating God and not having any itches to scratch and not having a sense of how do I make meaning in my life, being productive and those kinds of things. How do I use my gifts for it's a different quality of existence. If we use resurrection and the world to come as a way of, of 
trying to overcome the fact that we think that there'll become a time when, when we die and we won't be sentient anymore and we won't be able to taste things or feel things or whatever, um, that doesn't go to the kind of spiritual life that God intends. Um, I, I think that in the world to come, if I'm privileged to be there, I won't wake up three times a night because I have to go to the bathroom. That won't be a deal anymore. Uh, I'll have a different plane of existence. I will say, um, you know, all of our, uh, the, the, the Jewish understanding of the life uh, uh, to come and resurrection, as well as the Christian understandings are very countercultural. Uh, if I may lift that up, uh, my wife and I have been, as I'm sure many of you all have been watching more TV than we'd care to admit uh, in these last few weeks as we're all stuck at home. Uh, and I won't mention what the series are, so I don't want to ruin things for you if you are watching them presently. But there are two series that have come out in the last few years um, that both discuss from a very secular point of view the, the topic of the afterlife. And the one in particular was very troublesome to both uh, my wife Courtney and me. Uh, which seemed to have a view of the afterlife that um, was, yeah, eternal bliss, but without purpose. And uh, ultimately, the, uh, all, all the characters decided this isn't fun after a while, and we, are, we want to cease our existence. We want to choose annihilation or whatever that the case is. They didn't use that terminology, but I will. And it was troublesome for us because it's so against what we believe as Christians uh, that there is, uh, there is a purpose to life after death. It's not just uh, that we're there having fun playing golf every day. Um, and maybe we do play golf. I'm not saying there's no golf in heaven uh, or the afterlife, whatever that looks like. But um, I would suggest that uh, God has to be part of our afterlife. God's glory, understanding and probing the mysteries and the depths of God and coming to worship God, um, not just by saying prayers and singing songs uh, or listening to long, boring sermons, um, but, uh, but living a life the way that God has created us, I think is still bringing God glory and worshipful. And I think um, that is the message that we have that is so countercultural. Uh, that what we um, what we hope for in the afterlife is not hedonism, is not that everything we ever desired is now fulfilled, but that we get to be in the presence of of God. So, just as a, a last, I don't know if it's a last thought. Uh, Pastor Williams, Mark Williams, uh, did a program for us at Walsh that had to do with dialogue between Jews and Christians and between Lutherans and Catholics and so on and so forth. And uh, we got to talking about this whole concept of life after death and that by uh, having faith in, in Jesus and in Jesus's resurrection, we had hope of the world to come and so on and so forth, the pearly gates and all the streets of gold. And, uh, and I, I concluded that by saying, you know, Jews believe that there is a, um, there is a, 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 a street in, in Jewish thought 
that leads to the world to come. And what's going to happen is that in the worlds to come, in the world to come, I'm going to be walking down the street and Pastor Mark is going to be walking down the street and he's going to look and go, my God, Spitzer's here too. We're all <laughs> going to be there. Um, I think that's the idea, you know, the Jewish idea that we were intended to move through this existence into the existence of the world to come. Um, and uh, which is what I hope for, whether it's disaggregation and then ultimately aggregation again, uh, or uh, some kind of bodily resurrection, which of course raises the question, will it be this body or a better one? Any other questions or comments? In that case, dear friends, uh, we wish you blessings and Thank you again, Michael. Uh, uh, Thank you, John. Your presentation and for hosting this and all of you for being here. Have a safe evening and a wonderful new week. Thank you. Blessings to all. Thanks.